Section 5 of Astounding Stories 13, January 1931, by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sunken Empire, by H. Thompson Rich, Part B. In the navigating room now, Larry stood with the captain, the professor, and Diane, studying an illuminated panel on which appeared a cross of five squares, like a box opened out. The central square reproduced the scene below, while those to left and right depicted it from port and starboard, and those to front and rear revealed the forward and aft aspects of the panorama, thus affording a clear view in every direction. This, then, was the television device Professor Stevens had referred to the previous afternoon, its mechanical eyes enabling them to search every square inch of those mysterious depths as they cruised along. It was the central square that occupied their attention chiefly, however, as they stood studying the panel, while the others represented merely an unbroken vista of greenish water. This one showed the sea-floor as clearly as though they had been peering down into a shallow lagoon through a glass-bottomed boat, though it must have been a quarter of a mile below their cruising level. A wonderful and fearsome sight it was to Larry, like something seen in a nightmare, a fantastic desert waste of rocks and dunes with here and there a yawning chasm whose ominous depths their ray failed to penetrate, and now and then a jutting plateau that would appear on the forward square and cause Captain Peterson to elevate their bow sharply. But more thrilling than this was their first glimpse of a sunken ship, a Spanish galleon, beyond a doubt. There she lay, grotesquely on her side, half-rotted, half-buried in the sand, but still discernible, and to Larry's wildly racing imagination a flood of gold and jewels seemed to pour from her ruined coffers. Turning to Diane, he saw that her eyes, too, were flashing with intense excitement. "'Say,' he exclaimed, "'why don't we stop and look her over? There may be a fortune down there.' Professor Stevens promptly vetoed the suggestion, however. "'I must remind you, young man,' he said severely, "'that this is not a treasure-hunt.' Whereupon Larry subsided, outwardly at least. But when presently the central square revealed another, and then another, sunken ship, it was all he could do to contain himself. Now, suddenly, Diane cried out, "'Oh, Daddy, look! There's a modern ship! A—a a freighter, isn't it?' "'A collier, I would say,' was her father's calm reply. "'Rather a large one, too. Cyclops, possibly.' She disappeared some years ago, en route from the Barbados to Norfolk or possibly it is any one of a dozen other steel vessels that have vanished from these seas in recent times. The area of the Sargasso, my dear, is known as the Port of Missing Ships. But couldn't we drop down and make sure which ship it is? she pleaded, voicing the very thought Larry had been struggling to suppress. At the professor's reply, however, he was glad he had kept quiet. We could, of course, was his gentle though firm rebuke, but if we stopped to solve the mystery of every sunken ship we shall probably see during this cruise, we would have time for nothing else. Nevertheless, my dear, you may take a short memorandum of the location and circumstances in the present instance." Whereupon he dictated briefly, while Larry devoted his attention once more to the central square. Suddenly, beyond a dark pit that seemed to reach down into the very bowels of the earth, rose an abrupt plateau, and on one of its nearer elevations, almost directly under them, loomed a monumental four-sided mound. "'Say, hold on,' called Larry. "'Look at that, Professor. Isn't that a building of some kind?' Martin Stevens looked up, glanced skeptically toward the panel, but one glimpse at what that central square revealed, and his skepticism vanished. "'A building?' he cried in triumph. 
A building, indeed. It is a pyramid, young man. Good Lord! Oh, Daddy, really? Beyond a doubt. And look, there are two other similar structures, only smaller. Struggling for calm, he turned to Captain Peterson, who had taken his eyes from the forward square, and was peering down as well upon those singular mounds. Stop! Descend! was his exultant command. This is my proof. We have discovered Antilia. Swiftly the Nereid dropped to that submerged plateau. In five minutes her keel was resting evenly on the smooth sand beside the largest of the three pyramids. Professor Stevens then announced that he would make a preliminary investigation of the site at once. "'For otherwise I, for one, would be quite unable to sleep to-night,' declared the greybeard, with a boyish chuckle. He added that Diane would accompany him. At this latter announcement Larry's heart sank. He had hoped against hope that he might be invited along with them. But once again his champion came to his aid. "'We really ought to let Mr. Hunter come with us, Daddy, don't you think?' she urged, noting his disappointment. "'After all, it was he who made the discovery.' "'Very true,' said her father. "'But I had not thought it necessary for any one to accompany us. In the event any one does, Captain Peterson should have that honour.' But this honour the captain declined. "'If you don't mind, sir, I prefer to stay with the ship,' he said quietly. "'I haven't forgotten that radio warning.' "'But surely you don't think any one can molest us down here?' scoffed the professor. "'No, but I'd prefer to stay with the ship just the same, sir, if you don't mind.' "'Very well,' with a touch of pique. "'Then you may come along if you care to, Mr. Hunter.' "'If he cared to?' "'Thanks, professor,' he said with a grateful look toward Diane. "'I'd be keen to.' So he accompanied them below, where they donned their pressure suits, rubber affairs rather less cumbersome than ordinary deep-sea diving gear, reinforced with steel wire and provided with thick glass goggles and powerful searchlights, in addition to their vibratory communication apparatus and other devices that were explained to Larry. When he had mastered their operation, which was rendered simple by reason of the fact that they were so nearly automatic, the trio stepped into a lock on the floor of the ship, and Professor Stevens ordered them to couple their suits to air-valve connections on the wall, at the same time admitting water by opening another valve. Swiftly the lock flooded, while their suits inflated. "'All right?' came his vibratory query. "'Right,' they both answered. "'Then stand by for the heavy pressure.' Wider now he opened the water-valve, letting the ocean in, while at the same time their suits continued inflating through their air-valve connections. To his surprise Larry found himself no more inconvenienced by the pressure than he had been from the moment the submarine dove to its present depth. Indeed, most of the air that was coming into his suit was filling the reinforced space between its inner and outer layers, much as the Nereid held air under pressure between her two thick shells. "'All right now?' called out the professor's vibrator. "'Right,' they called back again. "'Then uncouple your air-valve connections and make ready.' They did so, and he likewise. Then, advancing to a massive door like that of a vault, he flung back its powerful clamps, dragged it open, and there beyond, its pressure equaled by that within the lock, loomed the black tide of the ocean bottom. Awed by this solemn sight, tingling with a sense of unparalleled adventure, Larry stood there a moment, peering out over the threshold of that untrodden world. Then he followed Diane and her father into its beckoning mystery. Their searchlights cutting bright segments into the dark, they proceeded toward the vast mound that towered ahead, pushing through a weird realm of phosphorescent fish and other marine creatures, 
as they neared it, any possible doubt that it was in fact a pyramid vanished. Corroded by the action of salt water and covered with the incrustations of centuries, it nevertheless represented unmistakable evidence of human construction, rising in steps of massive masonry to a summit shadowy in the murk above. As Larry stood gazing upon that mighty proof that this submerged plateau had once stood forth proudly above the sea, he realized that he was party to one of the most profound discoveries of the ages. What a furor this would make when he reported it back to his New York paper. But New York seemed remote, indeed, now. Would they ever get back? What if anything went wrong with their pressure suits, or if they should become lost? He glanced back uneasily, but there gleamed the reassuring lights of the Nereid, not a quarter of a mile away. Diane and her father were now rounding a corner of the pyramid, and he followed them, his momentary twinge of anxiety gone. For some moments Professor Stevens prowled about without comment, examining the huge basal locks of the structure and glancing up its sloping sides. "'You see, I was right,' he declared at length. "'This is not only a man-made edifice, but a true pyramid, embodying the same architectural principles as the Mayan and Egyptian forms. We see before us visible evidence of a sunken empire, the missing link between Atlantis and America.' No comments greeted this profound announcement, and the professor continued. This structure appears to be similar in dimensions with that of the Pyramid of Zocalalco, in Mexico, which in turn approximates that of the sacred hill of Atlantis, mentioned by Plato, and which was the prototype of both the Egyptian and the Mayan forms. It was here the Antillians, as the Atlanteans had taught them to do, worshipped their grim gods and performed the human sacrifices they thought necessary to appease them and it was here too if i am not mistaken that suddenly his vibratory discourse was broken into by a sharp signal from the submarine pardon interruption hurry back we are attacked at this the trio stood rigid captain peterson captain peterson larry heard the professor call speak up give details what has happened but an ominous silence greeted the query another moment they stood there thoroughly dismayed now then came the professor's swift command. Follow me, quickly. He was already in motion, retracing his steps as fast as his bulky suit would permit, but as he rounded the corner of the pyramid they saw him pause, stand staring, and as they drew up they in turn paused, stood staring too. With sinking hearts they saw that the Nereid was gone. Stunned by this disaster they stood facing one another, three lone human beings. On the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, their sole means of salvation gone. Professor Stevens was the first to speak. "'This is unbelievable,' he said. "'I cannot credit it. We must have lost our senses.' "'Or our bearings,' added Diane more hopefully. "'Suppose we look around the other side.' As for Larry, a darker suspicion flashed through his mind. Captain Peterson. Had he seized his opportunity and led the crew to mutiny, in the hope of converting the expedition into a treasure-hunt? Was that the reason he had been so willing to remain behind? He kept his suspicion to himself, however, and accompanied Diane and her father on a complete circuit of the pyramid, but as he feared, there was no sign of the Nereid anywhere. The craft had vanished as completely as though the ocean floor had opened and swallowed her up. But no, not as completely as that, for presently the professor, who had proceeded to the site where they left the craft resting on the sand, called out excitedly, "Here." Come here. There are tracks. Captain Peterson was right. They were attacked. 
Hurrying to the scene, they saw before them the plain evidences of a struggle. The ocean bottom was scuffed and stamped as though by many feet, and a clear trail showed where the craft had finally been dragged away. Obviously there was but one thing to do, and they did it. After a brief conference they turned and followed the trail. It led off over the plateau a quarter of a mile or more, in an eastward direction, terminating at length beside one of the smaller pyramids, and there lay the Nereid, apparently unharmed. But her lights were out, and there came no answer to their repeated calls, so they judged she must be empty. What had happened to Captain Peterson and his crew? What strange subsea enemy had overcome them? What was now their fate? Unanswerable question. But one thing was certain. Larry had misjudged the captain in suspecting him of mutiny. He was sorry for this, and resolved he would make amends by doing all in his power to rescue him and his men, if they were still living. Meanwhile his own plight, and that of Diane and her father, was critical. What was to be done? Suddenly, as all three stood there debating that question, Professor Stevens uttered an exclamation and strode toward the pyramid. Following him with their eyes, they saw him pass through an aperture where a huge block of stone had been displaced, and disappear within. The next moment they had joined him, to find themselves in a small flooded chamber, at whose far end a narrow gallery sloped upward at a sharp angle. The floor and walls were tiled, they noted, and showed none of the corrosion of the exterior surfaces. Indeed, so immaculate was the room that it might have been occupied but yesterday. As they stood gazing around in wonder, scarcely daring to draw the natural inferences of this phenomena, there came a rasping sound, and turning toward the entrance, they saw a massive section of masonry descend snugly into place. They were trapped. Standing there, tense, speechless, they waited, wondering what would be the next move of this strange enemy who held them now so surely in his power. Nor had they long to wait. Almost immediately there issued a gurgling sound from the inclined gallery, and turning their eyes in the direction of this new phenomena, they saw that the water level was receding, as though under pressure from above. Singular, muttered Professor Stevens, a sort of primitive lock. It seems incredible that human creatures could exist down here, but such appears to be the case. Larry had no desire to dispute the assumption, nor had Diane. They stood there as people might in the imminence of the supernatural, awaiting they knew not what. Swiftly the water receded. Now it was scarcely up to their waists, now plashing about their ankles, and now the room was empty. The next moment there sounded a rush of feet, and down the gallery came a swarm of the strangest beings any of them had ever seen. They were short, thin, almost emaciated, with pale pinched faces and pasty half-naked bodies, but they shimmered with ornaments of gold and jade like some strange princes from the realm of Neptune, or rather like Aztec chieftains of the days of Cortez, thought Larry. Blinking in the glare of the searchlights, they clambered around their captives, touching their pressure suits half in awe and chattering among themselves. Then one of them, larger and more regally clad than the rest, stepped up and gestured toward the balcony. They obviously desire us to accompany them above, said the professor, and quite as obviously we have little choice in the matter, so I suggest we do so. Check, said Larry, and double-check, added Diane. So they started up, preceded by a handful of their captors, and followed by the main party. The gallery seemed to be leading toward the center of the pyramid, but after a hundred feet or so it turned and continued up at a right angle 
turning twice more before they arrived at length in another stone chamber, smaller than the one below. Here their guides paused and waited for the main party. There followed another conference, whereupon their leader stepped up again, indicating this time that they were to remove their suits. At this Professor Stevens balked. "'It is suicide,' he declared. "'The air to which they are accustomed here is doubtless at many times our own atmospheric pressure.' "'But I don't see that there's anything to do about it,' said Larry, as their captors danced about them menacingly. "'I, for one, will take a chance.' And before they could stop him, he had pressed the release valve, emitting the air from his suit, slowly at first, then more and more rapidly, as no ill effects seemed to result. Finally, flinging off the now deflated suit, he stepped before them in his ordinary clothes, calling with a smile, "'Come on out, folks. The air's fine.' This statement was somewhat of an exaggeration as the air smelt dank and bad, but at least it was breathable, as Diane and her father found when they emerged from their own suits. They discovered, furthermore, now that their flashlights were no longer operating, that a faint illumination lit the room, issuing from a number of small crystal jars suspended from the walls, some sort of phosphorescence, evidently. Once again the leader of the curious throng stepped up to them, beaming now and addressing Professor Stevens in some barbaric tongue and to their amazement he replied in words approximating its harsh syllables. "'Why, Daddy,' gasped Diane, "'how can you talk to him?' Simply enough was the reply. They speak a language which seems to be about one-third Basque, and mixed oddly with Greek. It merely proves another hypothesis of mine, namely, that the Atlantean influence reached eastward to the Pyrenees Mountains and the Hellenic Peninsula, as well as to Egypt.' whereupon he turned and continued his conversation, haltingly, it is true, and with many gestures, but understandably, nevertheless. "'I have received considerable enlightenment as to the mystery of this strange sunken empire,' he reported, turning back to them at length. "'It is a singular story this creature tells, of how his country sank slowly beneath the waves during the course of centuries, and of how his ancestors adapted themselves by degrees to the present conditions.' I shall report it to you both in detail when time affords, but the main thing now is that a man similar to ourselves has conquered their country and set himself up as emperor. It is to him we are about to be taken." "'But it doesn't seem possible,' exclaimed Diane. "'Why, how could he have gotten down here?' "'In a craft similar to our own, according to this creature. Heaven knows what it is we are about to face. But whatever it is, we will face it bravely.' "'Check and double-check,' said Larry, with a glance toward Diane that told her she would not find him wanting. They were not destined to meet the test just then, however, for just at that moment a courier in breech-clout and sandals dashed up the gallery and burst into the room, bearing in his right hand a thin square of metal. Bowing, he handed it to the leader of the pygmy throng, with the odd word, "'Kabiri!' At this Professor Stevens gave a start. "'A message from their high priests,' he whispered. Whatever it contained, the effect produced on the reader was profound. Facing his companions, he addressed them gravely. Then, turning from the room, he commanded the captives to follow. End of Part B